Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice. Thanks, Louise. Um, I think most people know me. I'm Michelle, one of the directors of primary care. And I'm going to uh, introduce or going to let Shani and Martin introduce who are from LMC Law are going to lead the session this afternoon. I'm, as, as Louise has said, I'm going to chair it and, and monitor the Q&A. So, um, Shani, would you like to introduce yourself? So I'm Shirley Baker from LMC Law, Director and Lawyer, and some of you will already have dealt with me, um, but we've been dealing with healthcare now for about 17 years um, or more, and that's all we really do. We look after GPs and LMCs um, in the healthcare arena. Thanks, Shani. Martin, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello. Uh, firstly, an apology. Sorry, I don't have pictures of nice helicopters uh, like Shani does. You're stuck with a picture of me. But anyway, there we go. Uh, I'm uh, Martin. I'm a solicitor with LMC Law. Uh, I have been qualified for well over 30 years now. Uh, I deal with general corporate, commercial and employment law and data protection matters, uh, both inside and outside of the healthcare arena. Uh, and because of my employment law experience, it was thought a good idea that I uh, come and help Shani this afternoon to speak about uh, various employment law topics and questions. Thanks, Martin. So obviously, employment law, HR is a critical uh, topic and we want to we've got half an hour so we've got a couple of topics that we want to talk to you about the first being around agency staff and this came there's a follow-on from the practice manager conference and the other section and the other topic that we want to talk about is around nursing home staff and visitors to nursing homes and the requirement that from the 11th of November um, all visitors will need to be double vaccinated or have a medical exemption so I'm going to hand over to, I think I'm going to hand over to Martin first. I don't know which yeah, topic sure. you want to take. Should we That's do, right. That's should right. we do the agency staff yeah, first? Yeah, should we do with the agency staff first? Uh, it's, it's a matter that's becoming more and more topical. And I think it's becoming more and more topical because it's really difficult to employ staff directly. It's very difficult to get your hands upon appropriately qualified staff. So I think more and more GP practices are having to look to third party providers either to provide a service as far as you're allowed to subcontract and there are issues with that or simply to bring in staff so they can use those staff to provide a service. And you have a completely different relationship with the agency of providing the workers. You also have a completely different relationship with the workers you are hiring in, as you would with general employees or non-agency staff workers. So there are different rules that apply to your relationship as a GP practice with agency staff who are coming in and who are only temps and they're not your direct employers. There are different employees, there are different rules which apply, uh, but it's not often you'll hear a solicitor say this, most of the rules, most of the wrinkles actually apply to the agency themselves. Most of the administrative burden is not going to be an administrative burden of you as a hire of these staff. It will fall upon the agencies. But there are still some things you need to be aware of. There's still a little bit of administration that you will need to go through as a hirer of staff from an employment agency. And there are still some pitfalls that you need to be aware of. There are still some legal provisions that will apply to you as a user of temporary staff, uh, even though those temporary staff will not be your employees, or un unless you really muck things up, should not be your employees, 
or they won't be your workers and therefore have employee and workers' rights. Uh, first bit I'll deal with, just to deal with a little bit of administration, all employment agencies, whether they're providing permanent staff who you take on, or as we're talking about this afternoon, temps who are there to uh, perform a limited task for a limited role, have to obtain from you as the potential hirer certain information so they can pass that information on to the people they have in their books and so they can make sure that the people they supply you as a GP practice are right for you and right for the task and vice versa, you as a practice are right for them. So each agency will now have to ask you questions such, where will the people be working? What job are they going to do? What are the hours going to be? Are there any known health and safety risks, et cetera, et cetera? And what sort of pay and benefits are they going to get? You should be providing that information. So that's just a little bit of admin that you will be faced with using agency staff that you wouldn't be faced with otherwise. Uh, pitfalls, just because agency staff aren't your employees, just because they wouldn't qualify as being protected as workers, uh, doesn't mean that the Equality Act doesn't apply. The Equality Act specifically says that agency workers who are supplied by a supplier can be discriminated against by the end user. So if you have a, uh, uh, an agency worker who turns up and, for example, they are disabled, uh, as uh, defined by the Equality Act, then the duties that you owe under the Equality Act uh, apply to that agency worker, even though that agency worker doesn't satisfy the definition of a normal worker, and even though that agency worker is not a direct employee. But that's not the only thing you need to be aware of under the Equality Act, because not only can you discriminate directly or indirectly under the Equality Act, you can also be liable if you say to the agency, I want you to do something which is discriminatory. So, for example, and this is topical, uh, the example I use, if you say to an agency, uh, I want you to supply three FCPs. And by the way, don't send me anyone who hasn't got both of their COVID injections and their booster. So if they haven't got three injections, don't send them to me. You're not discriminating directly because you're not the one who's going to be going through the CBs and saying, yeah, three jabs, you're on the possible pile. You haven't had any jabs. You're not getting through. We're not putting you forward. You've got two jabs. I'm not putting you forward either. You are not doing that. You're not directly discriminating, but you have asked someone to do something which could be discriminatory. And therefore, if you do instruct someone to carry out discrimination, you can be responsible for that discrimination under the Equality Act as well. And if you're scratching your head and you're saying, well, how could having a requirement or saying to the agency, don't bother to send me anyone unless they've had all three jabs be discriminatory? Well, don't forget that unless you are clinically vulnerable, uh, boosters are only given to a certain uh, demographic you have to be I think it's over 50 so everyone who's under 50 bearing in mind that you can't go out and buy these jabs privately at the moment anyone who's under 50 and is not 
within the special clinical categories can turn around and say, well, hang on a minute, uh, I'm being discriminated against because of my age. I'm not 50, I can't get a booster, and therefore I've lost out on this job. Potentially that's discriminatory. And even though you as a GP practice haven't said to the individual, well, I'm not looking at your CV, because you haven't had a booster, that's what you've told the agency to do. The agency have done it, and under the Equality Act, you can be responsible for that. So those are two things you need to be aware of, even though you're not directly employing or these people aren't your direct workers. Uh, Martin, can I just, sorry, Martin, yeah, can sure. I just check? So you've mentioned about some admin tasks that you need to do when yeah. you're um, looking for agency workers is there we all like a good template but I wondered if there might be a template or a checklist that has the things that they need to be able to provide to the agency worker there what you should face is I don't think it's something you would have on your desk to remind yourself about what you will find is that the employment agency or, or the employment business depending upon what sort of staff they're providing to you will be writing to you with a pro forma okay. So you would get that from the agency. From the agency, that's fine. Rather so than something that you would have to uh, create yourself. So you'd get a checklist. Uh, the reason for it is because of the next thing we're going to talk about, written statement of in, uh, terms and conditions of employment. Uh, and the reason for it is that agencies have to provide information to their candidates and that information is very similar to the information an employer has to provide under Section 1 of the Employment Rights Act. They've got to get that information from somewhere. The only place they're going to get it is from the GP's practices who are saying, I need these six staff for the next six months. So that's the reason that you have to provide information to the agency so the agency itself can comply with its own legal uh, obligations. But that's a very good segue because the next thing I'm going to talk about is written statements of employment because I think there is a misconception amongst clients that the client itself, the GP practice, has to provide agency workers with written statements of employment. Unless you are employing those staff directly, or from April 2020, unless they are your direct workers, the GP practice doesn't have to provide the Section 1 statement to those temporary agency staff but the employment agency itself has to. So if you have an agency that says, oh, by the way, can you provide this clinician uh, with, written uh, with written statements of the terms that apply to them, as a GP practice, you don't have to do that. Don't be palmed off. That's the agent's job. It's not, that's the agency's job. It's not your job. So don't do their work for them. However, if, of course, you're taking them on permanently and you're, they're your direct employee, uh, which can happen, uh, but it's not going to happen unless that's what you intend, or they are your direct workers, then yes, you do have to apply the, uh, supply them with written uh, terms under the Employment Rights Act. But if it's just agency staff and they're temporary, that's not your problem. It's the agency's problem. Okay, so I just wanted to clear up a little bit of uh, confusion that we've had with clients saying it's our obligation. You say, no, it's not your obligation. Don't do the agent's job it's their burden i think that's really final useful thing to know. sorry that's really useful to know for practices yeah yeah uh, and the final thing i'd like to talk about is again it's carrying on the discrimination theme and it's equality uh two points i'd just like to reiterate here although i think most people are aware of these firstly from day one 
all agency staff, even if they're not your employees, even if they're not workers, uh, all temporary agency staff have the same rights as their comparable permanent colleagues to use shared facilities and services. So, for example, a temp who comes in on day one uh, will have the right to use a fridge to keep their sandwiches in the coffee machine uh, if there's a crash or anything like that. Uh, all services and facilities that permanent colleagues would get, they're entitled to share as well and to participate in. So that's the first thing. Not contractual T's and C's, but facilities. That's the sort of thing that we're talking about there. However, probably more importantly, after 12 weeks being in that job, uh, and there are specific rules on how you calculate that 12 weeks, what happens if you move from job to job, how big a break you can have, et cetera, et cetera, which I won't go on to this afternoon because we won't have time. But if anyone wants to pick up on that with us afterwards, we're happy to do that. Agency staff do qualify for the same rights as someone, the hirer employees directly in a comparable position. So two things to note. Uh, firstly, it only applies if you're, com if you're uh, comparing with apples with apples. It's not going to comply, uh, apply if you're uh, uh, comparing apples with pears. So they have to be in the same or broadly similar positions. But if they are when you move to the other side of that 12-week period, then they do qualify for the same rights as that comparable direct hire. That's the first thing. And the second thing is the law says that both the agency and the hirer are responsible if that duty is broken. So both the GP's practice and the agency, if the agency worker wants to sue, will be in the firing line. Both of them can be sued. And then it then becomes a task for the tribunal to work out whose fault it is and apportion compensation, because this is an issue of compensation between uh, the parties depending upon guilt. So, if, for example, uh, as a GP practice, you've been a good GP practice and you get to 12 weeks and you have paid the agency the cash for all benefits, et cetera, et cetera, that the agency worker is entitled to, but the agency worker has decided to keep its 20% off top and not pass all of that on. Although the law has been broken because that employee, that uh, agency worker hasn't had the equivalent. The reason they haven't had equivalence is the fact that the uh, job agency haven't passed it all on. And in those circumstances, you will no doubt find that although both the GP's practice and the uh, agency were sued, the tribunal will say the GP's practice has done nothing wrong. The agency are the villains here and therefore the agency have to bear the brunt of all of the compensation that we're going to award. But if, however, it is 50% fault of the GP practice, 50% fault of the agency, then no doubt you'll find that both are sued and both take equal responsibility for that compensation. Uh, but in a nutshell, those are the only uh, points that I want to raise in relation to agency workers. Uh, there are different rules that apply. Most of the burden of those rules fall upon the agency, but you still need to be aware of the fact that you can discriminate against agency workers and there are these genuine equality uh, provisions that you can fall foul of as well. Brilliant. So that Thank was the you, first Martin. Point there. Uh, 
Should we move on to the second question yeah. that we were going to cover? Yeah. So I think we were we're wanting to look at. Um, I've, I've briefly mentioned it. So from the 11th of November, there is a, a regulation that's being introduced that for nursing home staff and visitors to nursing homes must be double vaccinated or have a medical exemption. And we know that there's not very many medical exemptions that would apply. And that actually for any practice staff who only um, undertake uh, nursing home visits, that this could have quite a significant an impact on them. Uh, and it would be useful to understand and maybe just talk through uh, how uh, the practice need to approach this. I think it's probably useful just to highlight that Shani and I did work together, I think a few weeks ago now to produce a flowchart when this information first came out and to look at what practices need to consider in collecting that information about staff and having um, both their COVID vaccines. So it would just be really useful to work through and to talk through some of the implications. Sure. Yeah, yeah, that, that's that no problem. Might have. I'll, uh, I'll deal with the employment side. I don't think we're going to have time to deal with the data protection side, but I don't think the data protection side is anything other than another piece of data that you'll be processing. Uh, it's probably sensitive data because it relates to health uh, and therefore normal rules will apply in relation to that data that you're collecting. Uh, obviously, you'll need to update your privacy policies, uh, any data processing policies, data sharing policies that you have, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but I'll stop there as far as data protection is concerned because it is only Monday and people are just about waking up. I don't want to send them back to sleep again after the weekend. Uh, yeah, you're right. Uh, back in July, the government started the uh, running process leading up to 11th of November when all regulated care homes must ensure that all visitors, uh, any person who enters them, uh, must either provide full evidence that they have had both vaccinations. Uh, I imagine that as soon as there's sufficient uptake of booster as well, that will be extended to uh, all three vaccinations as well. Uh, or if you can't produce evidence of that, then you have to produce evidence of uh, exemption. So that's the first thing. Uh, it applies to care that's provided in nursing homes and care homes. It doesn't, however, apply to any care or nursing that's provided in a private home. So if I were to have someone come into my mother's house to provide her with care, that's a private dwelling. These rules do not apply. However, if my mother was in a private or a local authority nursing or care home, then these rules would apply. It applies to most people who are going to enter the care home, regardless of their role, uh, it's going to cover visitors, it's going to cover tradesmen, it's going to cover professionals, including healthcare workers, and that's where it go is going to link in and be most relevant to GP practices. Uh, I'm told that there will be specific guidance issued for healthcare workers, I don't know as of yet whether they've been issued or if they have been issued. No one's told me and I don't know what they say. So sorry if I'm a couple of days out of date, but when I checked on Friday, they hadn't yet been issued. I hope we will have those before the 11th of November. Uh, there are exemptions. Uh, as you said, uh, there are not many exemptions. I guess the main exemption which is going to be relevant to the audience will be 
uh, if you're attending a care home or a nursing home to provide emergency assistance, uh, then even if you don't have proof that you've been jabbed or you're exempt, you're still allowed in. So you can see the obvious uh, firefighter coming Martin, in. Martin, I'm I, I, sorry, just to sorry. just to jump in there. I think we there are going to be some practices who may employ um, staff specifically that it wouldn't be an emergency. It would probably be uh, uh, just a routine visit. Okay, and it's really just routine, to work yeah, through those yeah, people that yeah. potentially will that haven't been double vaccinated. Um, and that they ha how the practice can maybe work with them to see maybe that they are redeployed elsewhere. Or... This, this, is, this, is, this is the second part. Uh, the Sorry, first Martin, part I'll, is explaining I'll... what the rules are. And the last part, you've got a knack for actually guessing what I'm going to talk about next. Uh, my last part in relation to what the law is, you know, the binary element of the law is that there are exemptions for emergency services. Normally, you're speaking about firemen, but it may be possible that you have someone from a GP's practice who is called in as an emergency. Absolutely. Then the exemption would apply to them. But the next point, and this is the uh, this is the interesting point, because at the moment, until we get EAT, uh, sorry, Employment Appeal Tribunal guidance on what is likely to be right and what is likely to be wrong in these circumstances, the best you're going to get from any lawyer is well. This is best guess of what you should be doing. Uh, but I cannot say that this is going to be the right or the wrong advice until we get court decisions through on this. Uh, so that's what makes it interesting. But it's also interesting because it's the bit you have to think about is a practical implication. If you are a GP practice and you have staff who do nothing but go into care homes or nursing homes, or slightly differently, if you have staff who partly go into care homes and partly provide uh, their services outside of care homes. How do you deal with them if they're not vaccinated? Uh, can you dismiss them? Can you introduce terms into their contracts, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, so I'm just going to go through two or three categories very, very quickly, two or three points to give some guidance. But again, I want to stress that to a certain extent, it's wet your finger and put it in the air and see what direction the wind's blowing in. Because until we get tribunal cases or till we get EAT cases, you don't know. Uh, but I'll do my best. It's generic only. It's not fact specific. It may very well not apply to you. Uh, you may have to take a different uh, course, but at least it'll explain some of the things you can think about. Well, I think as in any genuine employment uh, situation, it's jaw, jaw, jaw initially rather than war, war, war. You need to give people time to adjust. You need to give them time to comply. They may not have their evidence available. They may not, although I doubt it, have their second jabs yet, but it's possible they haven't had their second jabs. So I think this needs to be proactive rather than reactive, although you don't have a lot of time to be proactive now with the rules coming in. Uh, you need to explore all the options available to someone who says, I don't have my jabs yet or I'm refusing to have them. Uh, you need to think about alternatives if they are employed specifically to go into care homes. Uh, and they haven't had their jabs or they're refusing to have their jabs. You need to think about redeployment. 
you need to think about any assistance you can give them to either help them get their jabs or bring them round to thinking that jabs are a good idea and they really should be getting them. Uh, you need to think when you're thinking about alternatives, is there any retraining that it is fair to give in the circumstances so they don't lose their job? If losing their job is going to be on the cards after you've followed a proper process, you need to think, is there any leave, leave paid or other leave that we can give uh, before we take any action? Uh, and then if there is no viable alternative whatsoever uh, to taking disciplinary action, because there are no alternative jobs available, uh, they refuse to take their jabs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What, if any, disciplinary action can you take against them? Uh, will that include dismissal? And if there's disciplinary action, how you can justify that, what sort of process you need to follow, and what sort of sanction may be uh, appropriate. And I'll talk about those two things shortly in a minute, but before we get there, having covered things generally, I thought it would also be useful to consider matters such as, well, care home working full-time, care home working part-time, or staff generally, can you ever be required or could you ever be justified in having a requirement of staff to have the vaccination? Uh, well, on its very, very basic level, we'll know you can't because holding someone down while the practice nurse sticks a needle in their arm is an assault. It's a criminal offence. You can't do that. So on its very basic level, no, you can never insist that someone is vaccinated. But can you have a policy saying that we would like staff to be vaccinated can you amend contracts saying we want you to have a vaccination and if you don't don't there may be an issue uh, that's a different question to saying can we force people to have a vaccination because no you can't force people to have vaccinations but you may be able to amend contracts you may be able to have a non-binding policy saying that we do want you to have vaccinations and if they break that contractual point, uh, that contract, if they break the policy, can you then take action to discipline or dismiss them? Uh, looking at the general guidance, ACAS, the route ACAS now take, although it's changed over the course of the year, and it's actually got less draconian rather than draconian, is ACAS say you can encourage people to have vaccinations, you should give people support to have vaccinations, but you can't really make it mandatory. Uh, they've actually changed their guidance. Back in February, they said in the right circumstances, you can probably have a contractual clause saying, if you can't do your job without having a vaccination, you must have a vaccination. Or even safer, you can have a policy that says it is our policy for you to have a vaccination. But they have, in February, they removed that guidance, which is a bit puzzling because I would have thought from general employment uh, law principles, it is possible in the right circumstances to have either a contractual provision uh, and even more so a policy saying that you can, uh, we do want you to have a vaccination. And it's even more puzzling that we've known about these care home rules since the early summer, and yet ACAS haven't come back and changed their guidance yet. So I'm wondering what issue ACAS have uh, that made them change their mind back in uh, February to say that, well, before February, it may be okay to require staff to have a jab and take action if they don't. But after February, it wasn't. Uh, 
the ECHR, uh, they uh, take a similar position. What they say is that uh, if you have an inflexible blanket policy or contractual term saying you have to have a jab, that's unlawful. Uh, Public Health England, they're silent on whether or not you can force, or the last time I read what they said, they were silent on whether or not you can enforce. But they do say that we would encourage all NHS staff to get their vaccinations. So if I am putting my finger in the air, and if I'm going to give some very generic advice, I would say that probably don't go down the route of introducing a contractual term saying that it is a condition of your employment that you have a vaccination. Uh, it may be able to work, but I think that is high risk. Uh, I think that you will have issues. If, if staff consent to it, that's one matter, but you still may have difficulty enforcing it. Even if only because you have a contractual term which says you are agreeing to an assault. And as a general point of law, you can't consent to an assault. So there are issues in relation to that. I wouldn't go down that route. If you want anything, then I think I would go down the route of having a policy which says it is our policy to ask staff to have both vaccinations. And if you don't have both vaccinations, then there may be consequences. But even then, you're not safe from uh, litigation if you take disciplinary action because there are potential arguments of discrimination there. I've already mentioned one type of discrimination, uh, age discrimination. Also, there's a process that you're going to have to follow if a member of staff has been employed uh, for at least two years, because after two years, you have protection against unfair dismissal. So even if you have a policy, and I think at most, all you can have is a policy which says we will ask you to be vaccinated. And if you don't uh, take that vaccination, there may be, we're not saying that there will, but there may be issues, uh, disciplinary issues that follow on. Introduce that policy, you will need to consult. Uh, if you have, I'm not sure, you're probably not going to have any, uh, you may have some staff who are unionised. If they're unionised and there's a different process you have to follow, uh, but you should have basic consultation in relation to introducing that policy. And then if someone doesn't comply with that policy, you're switching into unfair dismissal mode. How long have people been employed? If it's less than two years, they don't have general unfair dismissal protection but they still may fall into one of the categories where they're covered from day one, depending upon what the reason for dismissal is. You'll also need to be aware of any uh, discrimination issues and discrimination is going to kick in from day one as well. Uh, assuming, and it's always unwise to assume that there are no uh, discrimination elements, but because I'm three minutes over, let's for the sake of time assume there are no discrimination elements, you've still got your process to follow. So you're going to follow normal ACAS uh, recognised processes here. You're going to consult. You're going to warn us to consequences. You're going to have a meeting. You're going to listen, allow representation. Uh, you're going to take notes. You're going to consider what the correct balance is here, especially 
if someone is employed to do nothing but work in care homes, you're going to go into issues such as alternatives, leave, retraining, etc., as I've discussed above. You're then going to make a decision and, then, and you're then going to appeal. That's yeah. the easy part. The difficult part is what's the right decision for you in the circumstances. So I, I'm going to say two things and then shut, shut up until I get to the next point. Your safest route is going to be a policy. I wouldn't advise you uh, amend contracts because that's going to give rise to a whole, a whole raft of issues and a policy is going to be the easiest course for you to take. Secondly, just because you have a policy, it helps, but it doesn't mean that you can necessarily fairly and safely dismiss someone because there is a process you, you know you're going to have to go through. It sounds a really complicated, complex area. And I think we would always suggest for practices to seek HR advice when they're going through anything Precisely. like this. Yes. I think there's just a couple of questions. And actually, one's a really interesting point, actually. So practices and clinicians uh, over the la over for many years have had to have Hep B as, as a requirement or whether they are required. I don't know. I think that's a really good question. And how COVID vaccines are, are different to the requirement for clinicians to have the Hep B course to make sure that they're protected and they can protect patients. I think maybe that's something we might want to, to look at because there might be a policy already in place that could potentially be updated to include COVID vaccines. You, you could you could include COVID vaccines. I think probably what you'd need to do, and it would be part of the introducing the, uh, the policy, uh, the policy I don't think would just apply to staff who work exclusively in nursing or care homes i think although there may be different parts of the policy or a different application to them uh it would cover people who work partly in and partly out of care homes and people who don't work in care homes as well i think you'll need to cover all of those issues off although how you deal with the issues are going to be different because one class of staff can't do their job unless they are double vaccinated whereas other classes of staff will be able to do at least part of their jobs. Uh, so you should have a policy covering everything else. And, it, and as you say, it may be it's a policy which you amend from your existing policies. But I don't know. I'm, I'm not a vaccination expert, but I think you would need to carry out a risk assessment uh, and you would need to arrest, uh, assess whether or not there are different risks that uh, flow from not having a Hep B uh, vaccination as flow from not having a, a COVID vaccination. You'll also consider are there different grounds upon which an employee could object to having a Hep B a vaccination as they could object to having a COVID vaccination. So that there, yes, you can use an existing Hep B policy as a starting point, but you may not be comparing apples with apples. You may be comparing apples with pears and if you sack someone for being a pair based upon criteria that are applicable to an apple, then you could end up in a tribunal having to pay compensation. I think it's interesting. So we've just had a comment made that actually, sorry, just in the in the chat saying, actually, I suppose the difference here is protecting others versus protecting yourself. But we could debate this, I'm sure. We're slightly over time, aren't we? So, um, so I think we, that's... We could go, I'll shut up. No, no, it's not that. <laughs> I'm just thinking we've got another couple of other questions in there as well, which we may let's let's pick up. So the first one relates to um, your first the first topic that we went on uh, discussed, sorry, which was around agency. 
Yeah. And this this question is: Does all this does all the advice um, also apply to any doctors recruited through the National Association of Sessional GPs? If you if the people you recruit through the National Association of Sessional GPs, I'm just looking at the definition of. Uh, qualify as either a uh, an employment agency or an employment business then yes the legislation will apply uh, what i don't know is whether the body you've just mentioned falls within the uh, regulation uh so okay. the, the specific points about equivalency uh i don't know whether they apply uh, the points about if they become your employees or if they become your workers, section one statements, et cetera, they will apply. I believe the points about discrimination, general discrimination, as opposed to the equivalency uh, provisions will also apply. So okay. the thing I don't know is whether or not that body is covered by the equivalency points. Uh, I'd need to take that offline and work that one through. Would that be possible? I think that's quite that's. Quite an if, interesting if, question. If you, yeah, if you'd like to email me with details of the body, then of yeah, I can do that. That's not a problem. Brilliant. Thank you, Martin. I will do. And then the other question, I think this is another interesting one. Um, our home visiting team will visit care homes. Can you can we ask them for proof of their COVID vaccination and booster by asking for a copy of their COVID pass? I think reading this, I think you're asking for the care home staff to provide evidence. Do you think I've, I've been just looking for who's raised this question? I don't think you, uh, I think the issue would be the GP's practice would be asking for evidence from its own employees. It wouldn't I be asking for evidence of the care home staff and the regulations. Uh, and thankfully, I'm now 10 minutes over time, so I have an excuse for not going into detail. The regulations do set out what evidence can is adequate and how you go about getting it. And again, if, if, if you'd like details about that, if, if you just want to remind me, I can cover that offline in an email. Uh, but yes, uh, if you want to take disciplinary action against someone who is... Uh, on the grounds that they're either not vaccinated or they're refusing to give you evidence, then obviously you need to know what evidence you're entitled to ask for. I, I think that I think they're asking. Sorry, they um, they very kindly added a some more information. So it's actually practice health visiting service who we employ that visit care homes as part of their role. So yes, you could ask for a copy of their COVID pass. I would assume that that would provide yeah, the yes, evidence. The, the, yes, the, the, the regulation set out what evidence is, uh, you can ask for, what evidence gets you out of jail as a care home and what evidence would get you out of jail as an employer. So the answer to that will be in the regulations. Uh, and if the regulations say this is good enough evidence and that's your proof that that is good enough evidence and you're entitled to ask for it. And again, refusing to give evidence could in itself be grounds for disciplinary action. Brilliant. And I'm pretty sure when we've read the guidance, it does talk about the NHS app um, as well. So we have, there was one other question that came in That's as a preempt. And I'm just really, I, I know we're 10 minutes, I'm looking to Louise here to see if I'm in trouble because I know we're over, we are You're not in trouble. No, don't ask, but I think it's really um, relevant. And it's I just think there's, well, I think there's one question we should ask, which uh, came yeah. in specifically. Um, and they're, they're asking, uh, Martin and Chani, could you, are you able to give any more advice and clarification regarding the new ruling about including regular overtime in holiday pay? 
there still seems to be confusion about what constitutes regular overtime. And I just wonder whether you whether in five minutes or in a couple of minutes you can answer that question. And if not, then maybe we could put a response out with our podcast um, uh, with some text to go with it. It's entirely up to you, but I just thought it's a really yeah. it, it's a really good good question. Yeah, yeah. I, I can answer that in less than five minutes. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, firstly, this only applies to in the UK. Uh, I think this is apart from the service provision regulations of Chupi, and I spent I spent most of my career before I moved to co- commercial doing Chupi work. Apart from the service provisions uh, of Chupi, this is the only other example where the UK has actually gone further than EU law, because we actually give more holiday under our own regulations than we had to do under the directive. So what I'm speaking about only applies to the EU four weeks. It doesn't apply to the 5.6 weeks that you're entitled to under domestic legislation. So that's an annoyance. What I'm talking about doesn't apply to all uh, holiday. It only applies to the four-week EU directive holiday. So that's the first thing. Uh, It's it's the Lock and the Bear Scotland cases, uh, I think they're called, that apply to this. And the basic principle is that holiday pay must include pay that you would normally receive and this is all about what is normal and what isn't if it's guaranteed and compulsory overtime then it's normal and it should be included in holiday if it's overtime the employer is not required to give but if the employee once it is given to them is required to do that over time that is normal and therefore it should be included if it's over time where the employer doesn't have to give it and even if the employer does give the overtime the employee does not have to do it that's more interesting that's less binary, that's a grey area. What the courts have said is that, well, provided that it's been paid over a sufficient period of time or it's paid on a regular and recurring basis, then it will be normal and it should be included. What is a sufficient period of time what is a regular basis? What is a recurring basis? It's that old lawyer's get out. Well, it's well, I'm an old lawyer, so it is my get out as well as every old lawyer's get out. It depends upon the facts. And obviously, I've spoken for far too long to go into detailed facts about this. But yes, uh, if it's normal, it's included. And I've gone through three examples that the uh, the Supreme Court, after it, after it had been kicked up to Europe and come back again, Uh, have gone through is what's normal and what's not normal. The only difficulty is that the employer doesn't have to give it. If the employer gives it, the employee has to do it. Well, if that's gone on long enough, if it's regular, if it's recurring, that will be normal and it has to be included. And the only other thing I'd say is that don't forget that since April 2020, the referencing period is probably a year rather than 12 weeks, which it used to be. Uh, up until April of last year, but that that changed uh, when the government flip-flopped then. So if it's normal, it is included. Uh, And when you do your calculations, unfortunately, you have to go back uh, for a year or 
the advice is you have to go back through a year and until the Court of Appeal tells me I'm wrong, I'm right. So, okay, there we are. Thank you for that. We might ask you to pull some words together to go with this for the for the website because I think we've, we're getting this query quite frequently because, like you say, it's not it's, it's not it's quite grey, isn't it? There's not a real it is, interpretation. You, exactly, you've got two scenarios where it's binary: either it is or it isn't, and then you've got that. Well, we don't have to give it to you, and even if we do give it to you, you don't have to do it. It's okay. When does that become normal? Uh, yeah, some clients I've had, they've taken the view, well, we're going to have to pay out less in holiday pay over the next five years, and we're going to have to pay you for your advice because it would involve going to council. We'll just be pragmatic and pay it out. But, you know, that's, that's, that's your call. Brilliant. Thank that's you, Martin. I don't know if we, I think that's all the questions that we've done through the Q&A. We did have a couple of others, but what I think we might do is with the podcast, I'm looking to Louise to make sure this is okay, that we might put the responses to those with the podcast. Um, I think that might be quite useful. That'd be great, Michelle. Yeah, I think so. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you, Martin. Thank you, Shani. That's been a really useful session. And if people have got any other questions they'd like to ask, please do send them in. We can always speak with, uh, we work closely with Shani and Martin, so that would be great. Um, is there anything else that we need to, to speak, uh, to ask Martin and Shani while they're here? Or I think that's probably kind of running out of time a little bit now. So I think we probably are. if we just say thank you to Shani and Martin and um, respectively ask them to leave now, we'll just do 10 minutes of just running around the other updates that we've got for the practice managers. But thank you so much for your time. And uh, we will elaborate and make sure the answers that the, that we didn't quite get the answers to, um, we'll put those on our website and host that with that. So thanks, Martin. Thank you for Shani. Thank you very much. Thank you. Cheerio. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. So we've got a little bit more information. I think Dawn, our Deputy Director of Primary Care, is going to just share with us a little bit about some of the vaccines information you've got. Thanks, Dawn. Thanks, Louise. Um, <clears throat> yes, this is just a little update in case you haven't actually managed to get through your over-exploding email boxes as they are. Um, NHS Digital um, has made, um, made us aware. Uh, TPP practices, um, their extracts for the shingles service for September just for September, um, there have, have been problems. Um, and as such, this has resulted in uh, incorrect submissions for the month of September only. And those practices impacted may actually have received an overpayment. We have since heard this morning, and you may have seen this also, but just in case, they have actually rectified this TPP now. Um, so, so that's useful. However, having said they've rectified it, um, if you are a TP practice, you do need to take some action, please. Um, you need to go and declare and approve your shingle service on CQRS for September. But that is only TPP practices. That's not where it stops, unfortunately. Um, EMIS practices. Uh, so EMIS practices uh, EMIS also made a notification to NHS Digital to say they'd had problems with the extracts for the 6-in-1 and the PCV uh, HIPMEN-C services. And this resulted in incorrect submissions for all of those services between April 21 and September 21. So that's quite a large period of time. Um, equally, again, <clears throat> those practices impacted, those EMIS practices may also have received an overpayment. Because of this issue that's not yet resolved as far as we're aware, 
not at this time anyway today. Um, <clears throat> there may also be a delay in the submission for your October services for those six in one and the PCV Hidman C. Um, so please be aware of that. And at the moment, no further declarations can be made for those services by EMIS practices. All other services remain unchanged and you should continue as normal. So recap, TPP, shingle service, September only impact, but you can now go and um, declare and approve. EMIS practices, six in one PCV Hibman C, that is still an issue and ongoing. You can't do anything about that yet until um, you're advised that you can actually go and do so on CQRS, um, but all your other services remain unchanged. And that's all for me at this time. Thank you. Lovely. Thank you, Dawn. Um, so I just wanted to let you know that our next perhaps manager update is going to be on Tuesday, the 9th of November, um, just next week at one o'clock. And we're going to just we've got a, um, a guest from the medical new medical examination um, system that's coming in from the 1st of April. And it's we don't we know that you don't as perhaps managers need to do the full details. And we're going to do a much more lengthy webinar for the, um, GPs, but they'll just come along for the 10 minutes, 15 minutes or so, just so you've got a flavour of what's going on. So if you hear your GPs talk about it we've got an understanding so we thought that'd be useful for you so that's next tuesday um i had an email just as i before i came on the webinar today just to say oh my goodness my staff are exhausted this is just becoming really really tough do remember we're here we're happy to talk to you about it we can give you some options we have no magic wand if we would we would have waved it a long time ago but we can help and we can chat through things and different options for you sometimes it's just helpful to talk to them um, another person that isn't you know, particularly involved in your practice. Do remember we're here. We've also got our Space to Thrive groups, which are going really well. And I was talking to one of the um, practice manager supporters who's leading one of them to say, actually, the practice managers are loving it because they're getting together for the first time for a long time. A lot of them haven't been there before. Some of them are still um, face to face. Some of them are virtual. Um, but there's, there's a real sort of energy with those groups. So if you'd like to join in and have, chat to your peers, chat to your colleagues about other things that are concerning other practice managers, please give me a call and we can put you in with one of our Space to Thrive groups. Um, that employment law is really useful, Michelle. Thank you for organising that. Really, really helpful. Um, just so we've got a PCN-focused employment law webinar coming up. We've also got one on finance. So PCN finance is going to be the 9th of November and PCN employment law and organisational issues is going to be the 23rd of November. So again, they're on our website. If they would be useful to you, um, please just sign up for those and then we'd be very, very glad to see you. So I don't think there's any more questions um, and answers coming in. So all I say, thank you very much. Thank you for um, Lisa, Michelle and Dawn. And uh, we will be back with you shortly and we will see you soon. Take care. Thank you. Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice.